Welcome to the eGovernance Academy podcast to discover the future of governance. Tune in for the Digital Government Podcast every Wednesday. Welcome back, everyone, to the Digital Government Podcast. I'm your usual host, Federico Plantera, journalist, sociologist, and researcher. And today with me, we have Paul Timmers, another one of the speakers of the upcoming 2022 eGovernance Conference, which will happen in May between May 10th and May 12th. Paul Timmers is research fellow at the University of Oxford, senior advisor to the European Policy Center, and until 2017, he has been director at the European Commission for e-government, digital health and aging, and a number of other things. So Paul Timmers, thanks a lot for joining us today again. Hello, Federico. Thank you for inviting me again. So with you, we are actually going to reprise a little bit a topic that we have just hinted at introduced a little bit but a lot of stuff happened in the meantime that has changed let's say the international situation in that sense and also concepts around it and this topic is indeed digital sovereignty you will have exactly a session at the governance conference in may that is called um why is digital sovereignty important for governments it will be also a session that introduces your panel where you will also host uh, kaya Callas, prime minister of estonia uh, and other guests. So before mm, before getting into unpacking the different elements, because as far as I understand, there are different layers, no? different plans, let's say, to look at the topic of digital sovereignty, different axes, if you want. Um, let's answer this question right away. So why is digital sovereignty important for governments? Yeah, that's, that's a, a topic which has come ever more on the agenda. Uh, as they say in Germany, it's Chefsache or Chefinsache. It's uh, something for the government leaders that they have been discussing now for a number of years, uh, digital sovereignty, or actually what they are discussing really is what is at stake is sovereignty. Sovereignty is about what we think is important for us, what uh, belongs to us. Uh, you know, it can be territory, it's uh, people, it's uh, our values, culture. Uh, it can also be... Uh, the things that we consider important in the digital world, for example, our health data, you know, uh, we can consider that as a sovereign asset. So that what is important for us and for our future, also for our children. And we uh, increasingly kind of feel that sovereignty is uh, threatened. Um, this is becoming uh, more and more evident and very kind of uh, painfully evident today because today with the war, on Ukraine, we see that sovereignty is uh, immediately threatened over a country which is very near to us and even also affecting many others in the world in their in, in, in the things that they find important for uh, their own way of living and for uh, their future. So digital plays an important role in that because we have become ever more digital. We are dependent upon these mobile networks and uh, the, the infrastructures that provide us uh, public services, etc., etc., and uh, in the digital world, we see also that there are these kind of threats, for example, cyber criminals that are stealing information or foreign states that are stealing our intellectual property or might even disable our energy networks, as we have seen happening. So there's a set of kind of uh, threats, geopolitical, coming from the digital world um, that are uh, and, and from big challenges that uh, we have also seen, like the pandemic that are threatening our sovereignty. And government leaders have seen it, you know, over the past years, they have discussed it a lot. This has really been at the top, but now increasingly they say we need to act. And uh, the 
situation in Ukraine makes that even more clear that we need to act uh, also in the digital domain. And acting in the digital domain is digital sovereignty. Paul, before we get, let's do a little bit of a ring composition, let's say. So like you mentioned the threats and let's get to that at the end of the episode. Because before then, uh, before talking about the threats, for example, uh, a bit more in detail, what I would like to um, to address with you is exactly like these different uh, how to say, layers, these different uh, plans, let's say, of digital sovereignty. Meaning, uh, as far as I understand, when we talk about digital sovereignty, you have mentioned, for example, infrastructure. So you have mentioned like technological components. But then at the same time, digital sovereignty, when it, uh, sovereignty in general, and then uh, by extension, digital sovereignty, implies also assets that are not tangible, but that still equally, if not even more so than technology, let's say, contribute to the functioning, let's say, and the, the fulfillment, the renewal somehow, no, of this like sovereignty. So let's unpack these elements a little bit so we can introduce them and we can also like give a, give the audience a little bit of a, a more of a sneak peek into what is going to be uh, talked about at the conference, because the conference is about seamless and resilient government. Digital sovereignty like cuts across these two topics, of course, uh, uh, in, in the best way possible. So let's talk about the the two these these two asset classes, let's say, of digital sovereignty. One the tangible and one the non tangible one. Let's start from the latter. So technology, you know, uh, infrastructure. What are we talking about? What are the salient elements, let's say, in this sphere? Of digital sovereignty yeah yeah if you want to protect your sovereignty you need to also have the means to do so and and the means to do so is actually what you call strategic autonomy and if it is the digital means we call it digital strategic autonomy or digital sovereignty it's a bit of confusion of terminology perhaps but if you think in terms of means things that you have and things that you know you know your tangibles and uh, and intangibles then we are definitely talking about uh, the knowledge that we are building up on which we have the jobs of the future, our intellectual property, but we're also talking about uh, infrastructures that we use every day. So the mobile networks, or for example, uh, the computers that are steering our electricity and our transport systems, uh, the, the health monitoring systems uh, in a hospital, uh, anything of that nature that we have uh, in the public administrations, we th see uh, things like uh, the use of electronic ID, uh, electronic signatures. That's all part of uh, the digital infrastructure at a very, very basic level. So unpacking it a little bit, if you what what goes into the, these infrastructures is actually the chips, you know, the semiconductors. So you may wonder how good should we be to have some form of control on these semiconductors so that we know how do they, they work, that's your, your capability, that we can produce them, that's your capacity, and that we have some control on them. And, and that has become quite a big theme because Europe is very dependent on others for semiconductors. So that, is, that means also somehow in, in overseeing the supply chain, let's say. In that sense, yeah. a little bit. So you, you see, for example, uh, we got uh, a big problem in the supply chain of semiconductors. Uh, as a consequence of that, for example, some of the car factories had to close. They couldn't get the chips that they needed. Uh, but that's kind of like a resilience issue. You know, you might say that's only supply chain try to organize the logistics better. But you might be thinking, well, but it's a bit more profound than that. We actually need to be able to produce them ourselves. So Europe has recently come with a law 
uh, and a set of initiatives, which is called the EU CHIPS Act, which is to increase the capacity of producing semiconductors in Europe itself. And these are big, big factories, you might say, FABs, they call them, and we need to invest the tens of billions in it. And also to increase our own knowledge about semiconductors and to have that in our own hands. So there's really a strategic autonomy, uh, capacity, capability and control, a C3 type of issue for semiconductors. Uh, so that's an important part of uh, the basic components, you might say, that go ultimately into these digital infrastructures. Uh, your, your electronic ID card has a chip to mention a thing. Also, this is actually a reminder, let's say, to everyone that when we talk about digital topics, digital government, I mean, we shall not forget hardware. Hardware Indeed. is still part of technology <laughs> as much as, let's say, software and also like ag policy agendas and all these things. So, I mean, achieving some sort of like, not independence, but at least, I don't know, being self-reliant, self let's say, on those topics. Yeah. I Perhaps not quite self-reliant, because let's be realistic, most countries and even the EU is not large enough to do everything on your own. And it's also not a good thing to do everything on your own. You have to be able to work with others in the world. If you don't trust them, you might say, I can only work with others that I do trust, that are kind of like-minded. But even if you work only with like-minded partners... Uh, in a big area like semiconductors, it will be quite hard to do everything on your own. So you need to think also about global collaboration. So there are actually kind of three ways if you want to have, uh, let's say, your future in your hands. You can work with, uh, you can, well, four ways. You can do it all yourself, but that's not very likely. You can work with like-minded trusted partners in strategic partnerships. That's a possibility. You can uh, try to make this into a global concern. And, you know, climate, we are not going, no, not a single country is going to solve the climate challenge on its own. But climate is a real threat for your sovereignty. So you need to work together globally. And we did in the past. That's how we fixed the ozone layer problem. And, uh, and then the final approach is, of course, you can kind of do the best you can do. Kind of take it as a risk, but try to, to hedge against all the risks that are there. But in a very, very important topic like sovereignty, it's a bit problematic. But Paul, here already we moved to a more like international, let's say, level. Now, if we if we instead like look inward a little bit, so on what like domestically can happen, then we see we move on to the other asset class, let's say, you know, the one that you also have hinted at already in term by mentioning trust, you know. So like what are I mean, maintaining, let's say, renewing, like, um, say, um, alimenting in a way as well. This like digital sovereignty at the national level means also that uh, we we should safeguard in a certain way, you know, the public opinion, like the media sphere, like because in any case, digital threats, we will get to that in a little bit, can come also, let's say, to the information space and to trying to influence the public opinion, you no, know? it Absolutely. to the end of uh, somehow meddling with trust between governments and uh, and citizens. So with trust in institutions, which is actually a very strong, statistically speaking, is a for societies a very strong indicator of this like um, uh, reef, let's say, with this uh, of this mismatch, maybe the, the asymmetry that there is between uh, in terms of plans and ways of seeing the future of the country and intending interpreting the relations within the country between people and uh, and the government. So what are some of these in intangible assets, let's say, like yeah. trust? Yeah, you are mentioning a very good uh, uh, word, trust there. So if you talk to political scientists and you ask them, what is this sovereignty thing actually about? 
Then one of the things that they will always say, you know, there has to be in sovereignty uh, legitimacy, an internal legitimacy, which is between the state and the citizens, and external legitimacy that as a country you are recognized by other countries. And uh, today you see that uh, external legitimacy is uh, threatened in a number of cases, but internal legitimacy also, uh, because there is a, in a number of cases you see that trust uh, is breaking down between the state and the citizens. And this is kind of in a two-way type of thing. So how do uh, governments uh, ensure that they are internally legitimate? Well, they need to provide good public services. Uh, democracy needs to function. Uh, citizens need to see that their voice is heard uh, and that there is fair treatment for the law, for example. So everybody is equal for the law. So there are these kind of principal kind of things that are important. And uh, let me immediately jump then to how do you see these kind of things changing today in the digital world? Well, governments are using um, data about citizens to provide services. Uh, these data need to be analyzed. Imagine that you are using some artificial intelligence for that. And the artificial intelligence has some built-in discrimination. Then some citizens may not be fairly treated for the law in terms of, for example, getting employment support or uh, social security or what have you. The famous and case of the Netherlands comes to you mind. You can think of cases. Well, there are actually quite a number of cases. I can mention that this happened in the Netherlands. It happened in the UK. It happened in Austria. It happened in many places around the world. Actually, uh, to add to this, because usually and the, the case of the Netherlands is the one that I mentioned like, when we talk about algorithms in the public sector, like on, on this podcast, they happened already like a couple other times. But actually, the, recently, another case came up with, with Spain, for example, uh, where an algorithm was used to try and determine, let's say, the exposure to risk of domestic violence of yeah. uh, women yeah. in society. But uh, it turned out after an analysis in, the, in indeed of the like an impact assessment, let's say, that and the algorithm kind of failed to do the job that it was designed for, let's say. So that can happen. Yeah. And let alone that you have surveillance algorithms, as there are in some societies where the state is keeping uh, every citizen in principle under surveillance. Well, I cannot imagine that you can talk about a high trust and equal relationship between citizens and the state in that case. So we are talking about a balance between your personal autonomy and your personal freedom and uh, the sovereignty of the state, so your personal sovereignty and the state sovereignty. That's where we need to find a balance in which trust uh, stays maintained. So you have to be quite careful as a government when you start using uh, data and algorithms, but you also need to use them because then you can deliver much better services. So this is um, a big debate about how do you do proper use of artificial intelligence. And that's software, that's an intangible, that's the knowledge that we put in there. And actually, we know that if you program that technology, you are putting implicitly your values in it. So that's even more intangible, your values and your norms. And you are creating new norms. You know, it may actually be a new norm that uh, during the pandemic we said, well, really people do have a responsibility to tell whether they have COVID because they can infect others. You know, that's a new kind of norm that has uh, been uh, coming up and which is actually supported by technology because with technology you can track and trace. So we are in a very interesting uh, debate, you might say, that is becoming very kind of visible because we see it through the services. Uh, are we respecting the trust between citizens and the government? And that's a, an essential element of sovereignty, the internal legitimacy.
Actually, the specific example that you brought up is also like something that somehow establishes a very visible and clear connection for citizens between their individual actions and what is regarded instead as the public good, especially when it comes to public health uh, and when it comes to the pandemic. But one thing that you mentioned about, for example, the different approaches that there could be to implementing technology from the government perspective and what is their impact in determining, let's say, some variation within the models of how this is done, then uh, I'm reminded of some uh, of, a, um, of the conference talk at the e-governance conference of a couple of years ago, or maybe three years ago, I don't remember exactly, by Andrew Keane, who was presenting his book, uh, where he was uh, locating, it's like placing different models of e-government on a spectrum, no? of uh, how to say, of um, how democratic it is, for example, how transparent it is, how much trust plays a role in this. So the quest my question to you at this point would be, is there or could there be a European way to this, to um, shaping and formulating, let's say, digital sovereignty uh, continent-wide, let's say, or at least political Europe-wide? Yeah, how interesting, Federico, because at this podcast you are really drilling down to one of the fundamental and, and most difficult questions that we have in Europe. What is actually Europe's way in this world? You know, And I would say that to in this world where we see big geopolitics uh, playing a role, where we say Europe is not the same as the United States, Europe is not the same as China, Europe is definitely not the same as Russia, Europe is in some way or another having its own identity, but then Europe is also very diverse and fragmented, and we often uh, spend more time disagreeing with each other than agreeing with each other. So I would say that one of the keys to answer that question is actually in this balance between personal sovereignty and state sovereignty, the relationship between the citizens and their autonomy and the respect for their personal life and the respect for their diversity, and uh, the, the common good that we have in Europe, let's say European sovereignty or national sovereignty of states in Europe, where we also expect from the governments that they do a good job. They provide public services. They, there is a role for governments to take care of those that are more vulnerable in society. There is a role for governments to protect the infrastructure that delivers democracy. And that's uh, the infrastructure that delivers justice and those kind of things, which individuals cannot do. So it's, uh, and, and there is a role of governments to kind of protect the state against uh, malicious foreign influences, that too. And I don't think that it's easily said this is precisely the balance, but the balance in Europe may be, well, definitely is different from the balance in uh, China. Uh, it, it has also a different quality, a different flavor from the balance that we see in the United States. And I think that's a certain type of um, search, but also a certain pride that Europe is different in this respect. Well, personally, I would definitely say pride. And second, but second, also, as someone coming from uh, from a political science and sociology background, I mean, the topic of like of uh, citizens looking at governments for uh, the things that citizens individually for the challenges actually that citizens individually cannot face. No, that's exactly a bit part of the of some sort of like a. Um, I mean, what gives legitimacy, let's say, also to governments from the perspective of citizens domestically. 
And uh, by extension, I think we could say that also in terms of international organizations when it comes to international challenges. I will get now to the topic of threats a little bit to expand a little bit on that and then wrap up this episode with a question on it. Because uh, we mentioned the threats before. Uh, we now have um, uh, talked about the um, domestic threats, for example, to legitimacy, trust, and uh, as a consequence also, not maybe not threats to digital sovereignty, but what digital sovereignty can do to frame these threats and then intervene on them. No, um, one that I would add, one that I would start with actually, because we mentioned already some, but one that in, that internally comes to mind, for example, to give also the audience uh, a practical example, is uh, what mm, the effect, for example, that a certain uh, people versus elite type of rhetoric, let's say, that was very, very much in fashion in the past, let's say, seven to eight years, let's say, after the global economic recessions. Uh, this rhetoric, let's say, in politics leveraged by some parties, for example, also as a consequence like, um, or in a feedback effect, let's say, in a feedback loop, uh, contributed to decreasing in some countries the trust in uh, institutions no because in any case the, the the normal association that was done was like okay elite so people who make it there aka institutions no and that is something that can undermine some trust and like legitimacy in government um in governments nationally paul if we were to mention some of these threats and expand on them a little bit more just let's say two or three of them to to wrap up this episode in the under i don't know a good star let's say uh what could we what could we mention you can freely choose between national and international ones let me let me take something that plays out at the national and at the european level so um you might have this alienation this uh gap uh, created if government just knows all kind of things about you and, and 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 assumes that you behave in the digital world like they have actually designed you know if the governments have a picture of citizens that a citizen is a piece of data and an electronic identifier and that's the way you are treated that shouldn't be the case like that we will also do, discuss that during the debate in this uh, conference the the intention should of course be as we all want that we are treated as proper uh, in a proper way, as a human being, as a citizen, as a citizen living in a community, as a citizen who also is willing to take part in the larger community of a state in a responsible way. And so we are not a data item. And therefore, uh, one of and, and that can ultimately translate into quite technical things. You should be able to see what is going to happen with your data, which is uh, has to do with transparency of government so that you know, you know, our, you can check uh, independently that you are treated fairly, also in comparison to others. You can see who has been looking at your data. You need to be sure that if you identify yourself, that your electronic identification is not going to be used in some kind of commercial way uh, on which you have no control at all, that there is tracking and tracing perhaps by commercial companies. So I think we have increasingly seen that things that are now developing that are quite useful, like on your mobile phone, you can have a digital wallet in which there is your COVID pass, your driver's license, your citizen ID, etc. that they should be really properly managed under the control of citizens. So they see what happens with it. They can say who is allowed to do something with it but also giving a legal status to it so that you can use it really, you know, for something important. So I sign my documents electronically with my electronic ID. And that means, you know, there's a legal value to it. And that's all technically feasible, but it's a choice. 
if you choose as a government to do everything centralized under your control, you are actively working on the destruction of trust. If you uh, do it in a partnership with the citizens where you tell the citizens, this is what you get and this is what you can see, and you're also allowed to criticize it, I think you can avoid some of this kind of gap, creating some of that uh, gap. So ultimately, it, it also boils down to choices for technology and from whom you buy the technology and all of that. Paul, wonderful chat. Thanks a lot for joining me today. Great pleasure. And to the rest of our audience, you can catch Paul, if I may say it this way. Catch Paul Timmers at the upcoming eGovernance conference. Just head to 2022.egovconference.ee because the uh, upcoming uh, uh, sessions are uh, going to happen between May 10th and May 12th in a hybrid format. So uh, if you want in person, see you in Tallinn. If you don't want in person, see you online. You can follow the whole conference either way. And um, that's it also for me, uh, from me for today's episode. And uh, just see you at the next one. This podcast is brought to you by eGovernance Academy. Tune in on next Wednesday. <laughs>